In his second letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul gives us a phrase that uh, really does capture the heart of Christ's work. He says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Reconcile is actually uh, a favorite word of Paul's. He uses it in the letter to the Romans, in the first letter to the Corinthians, and here in the second letter to the Corinthians. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. In Christian theology, this is known as uh, the atonement. And as we begin Holy Week, it's our focus for today. This is the sixth and final Sunday of the season of Lent, a day better known in the Christian calendar as Palm Sunday, based on the story of Jesus' triumphant entrance into Jerusalem in the final days of his ministry. Today is also known actually as Passion Sunday, Christ's passion being that part of his story that uh, begins with his last meal with his disciples and ends with his burial. We uh, tell the story of Christ's passion on Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, but the church has always recognized this day as both Palm and Passion Sunday because, uh, and I know you're going to find this hard to believe, not everyone comes to church on Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. In fact, when I was a kid growing up in the Roman Catholic tradition, we read both the Palm and the Passion narratives every year on Palm Sunday, and that's actually an option in our Methodist tradition as well. We're not going to be reading the Passion story this morning. We'll get to that on Thursday and Friday. Uh, But we are talking about an essential aspect of Christ's ministry that most people associate with the end of his earthly life. And the atonement, as we'll see, is actually about more than just the cross. This is also the final week of our sermon series on Extraordinary Life, a Lenten journey with Jesus. We've been reading through the Gospel of Luke each week, focusing on a different aspect of Jesus' ministry. In the first five weeks of this series, we talked about uh, the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, his first sermon, his healing ministry, his teaching ministry, and his miracles. And as we pick up the story today, Jesus has uh, journeyed to Jerusalem for the Passover and is arriving in the holy city. So this is Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the evangelist Luke. After he had said this, he went, uh, went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find there tied a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching from the path down down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully and with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, 
the stones would shout out. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So the Gospels are clear that uh, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he arrives with great fanfare. Uh, While almost certainly there was no one in the crowd who fully understood exactly who he was or all that he was doing, he nonetheless arrived in Jerusalem riding this, this wave of incredible popularity. Luke makes clear that the religious authorities are afraid to arrest him or to harm him because of his popularity. And we've, we've spent the past five weeks talking about just why it is that the people are so captivated by him. Uh, he's, in, he's been intentional about sharing the good news of God's love and forgiveness with everyone, especially those on the margins of society. He's embodied uh, a healing ministry that cares about people more than the restrictions of the law. He's taught in a way that challenges us to be better than we otherwise would be by um, teaching uh, that which shapes our characters and transforms us. He's worked miracles on behalf of others, miracles that demonstrate the power of God working through him. He's been so captivating, so charismatic, so challenging and empowering and transformational that as Luke will tell us in the reading we'll get to in just a couple of minutes, all the people were spellbound. So much has led to this moment of triumphant arrival in Jerusalem. So much has happened. So many lives have been touched in stories recorded by the gospel, stories that have continued to touch lives for almost 2,000 years. Writing a quarter of a century later, the Apostle Paul will say that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. What comes next in the days that follow our text today is is an important part of the story, but it's good to remind ourselves that the coming days of Holy Week are just part of this long story. Now, before we, we get to that, did you notice anything unusual in Luke's account? of this story. I'm I'm guessing most of you have been around the church for a while. Most of you have heard a version of this story at some point. Uh, Did you notice anything unusual about it? Now Luke, without question, is Christianity's greatest storyteller. Some of the most memorable moments in Jesus' life are found only in Luke. Later this year, we're actually going to do a a sermon series on Luke's greatest hits, (laughs) stories from Luke's gospel that, um, that, uh, stories from Jesus' life that only appear in Luke's gospel. That includes like the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son and Zacchaeus. But did you notice there are two important details from the story of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem that do not appear in Luke? Two details that are central features of every Palm Sunday worship service. First, there are no palms. (laughs) Did you notice that? I won't go back and reread it. Just take my word for it. There are no palms. Instead, Luke tells us that people laid their cloaks before him as he entered Jerusalem, but, you know, cloak Sunday would sound a little sinister, so we've always called it Palm Sunday. And the other missing thing in Luke's account is the word Hosanna. (laughs) Think how different our Palm Sunday music would be if we only had Luke's gospel. What would the children sing? (laughs) 
what would they wave as they're processing in? I mean, I guess they could wear cloaks and sing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That would have a totally different feel than what we normally do on Palm Sunday. But despite the missing details, the story of the entrance into Jerusalem uh, marks the beginning of the end of Christ's earthly ministry, a ministry uh, that will appear to all the world to end at the cross on Good Friday. So to return to our subject for today, atonement, I think, I think many, uh, perhaps most of us, draw a direct connection between uh, the atonement and Jesus' death. For many people, uh, the atonement is all about the cross. But did you know um, that there are actually many different theories of the atonement? There are, are different understandings of just how it is that God reconciled the world to God's self in Christ. And did you further know that the church, uh, number one, has never settled on a single theory, and number two, has never insisted that every Christian believe a particular theory? (laughs) It's true. Now, we don't have time for a survey of all the theories, uh, but I want to highlight two this morning. The first one being uh, the one I think most of us grew up with, um, either overtly or through kind of cultural Christianity. This is the theory that says uh, that because of sin, uh, humanity had a debt that it owed to God, right? And because of the extent of that debt, both mine and yours personally and ours collectively, uh, the only thing that could pay that debt was the death of God's one and only son. I'm I'm sure you're familiar with that theory. And depending on which tradition you grew up in, um, that may have been the one that was emphasized. Now, this is generally known as the substitutionary atonement theory, although there are variations that go by other names associated with different theologians throughout the centuries. In the wonderful hymn, How Great Thou Art, it was one of my grandmother's favorites. Uh, It's a hymn that's meant a lot to me uh, over the years of my own spiritual journey. There's this line that captures the essence of this theory. It shows up uh, actually in several hymns, but in this one in particular, it's vivid. It says, uh, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. Now this is, uh, there's certainly biblical warrant for this theory. Uh, If it's meaningful to you, I am definitely not trying to talk you out of it. Uh, Millions of faithful Christians over the centuries have have understood the, the cross and the atonement in precisely this way. But for me, uh, this theory has always raised more questions than it answered. If you feel the same way about that, by the way, uh, we can grab a cup of coffee and talk about it more, probably after Easter. (laughs) So that in seminary, when I learned that there have always been, throughout the church's long history, and in fact, in the pages of Scripture itself, there have always been other understandings of the atonement, then I began to think of Holy Week in a new way. Uh, we're going to come back to this, but right now we need to, to finish the text. This is the end of that 19th chapter, verses 45 to 48. Listen again, friends, for God's word. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there, and he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people 
kept looking for a way to kill him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. Amen. Uh, Scholars believe that the, the cleansing of the temple was the last straw for those who were threatened by Jesus' ministry. And it's always been this way. For all of our salvation history, prophets who challenge the status quo, prophets who confront those in power, prophets who, who want to reform systems that benefit the few at the expense of the many have, have run the risk of being persecuted for their message. And in the first century in particular, those who were perceived to have been a threat to the, to the Roman Empire often met violent ends. Jesus' message, a message that we've been talking about throughout Lent, had been unambiguous from the beginning that God's kingdom, God's love, God's grace, God's forgiveness is intended for everyone. That for God, there are no outsiders. Uh, In his day, the outsiders were the poor and the sick and the sinner, the prisoner, the marginalized, the Gentile. It's such an inescapable foundation uh, of his ministry that it's worth challenging ourselves, I think, Whoever we think are outsiders, whoever we may view as needing to do things our way, uh, are probably the ones that Jesus would be inviting to dinner today. Jesus was, was constantly telling religious leaders who thought they had it all figured out that in fact God's vision is broader than theirs. And he backed this up with his preaching and his teaching Uh, He was in fellowship with people uh, who the religious leaders thought he should have avoided. That's a common theme. He was welcoming to those whom society thought were better left on the outside. It's a common theme. He, He healed and he worked miracles on behalf of those whom so many deemed to be unworthy. And the crowds loved him for it. (laughs) While the religious authorities were hell-bent on killing him for it. And on that first Palm Sunday, which I guess Luke would have to call Cloak Sunday, both of these groups were there to greet him when he entered Jerusalem for the final time before his crucifixion. And ever since that uh, momentous week, the momentous events of that first Holy Week, Christian theologians have developed uh, lots of ways of thinking about just just how it is that in Christ we are reconciled to God. The atonement theory that I find most meaningful, the one that resonates the most with me, is called Christ the Victor. Uh, It's a theory that says that through Christ's extraordinary life, through all of it, through the incarnation of God in a baby born into poverty at the far edge of an empire that could not have cared less about his life, through a a ministry that taught and healed and worked miracles on behalf of every child of God unconditionally, through a love that was willing to risk the cost of confronting the powers that be in a world consumed with sin, through an unjust execution in the barbaric manner of an empire that sought to instill fear in its subjects, and through the end of the story (laughs) that we'll get to next week, which is to say, through his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection, Christ conquered the powers of sin and suffering and death and evil once and for all, forever. 
empowering us to live spirit-filled, grace-filled lives. And in so doing, God uh, reconciled us to God through Christ. All who put their faith in him have access to that power in him. And what Christ the victor says is that it took every bit of his extraordinary life to do that. Now, ultimately, uh, every theory about just how Christ affects the atonement uh, offers only a partial understanding. What matters most is that God, uh, we are reconciled to God through Christ. That's what, what matters most. The, the how has been explained in many ways, but no, no metaphor or analogy is precise. All theories represent human attempts to explain God, which is a terribly pretentious, <laughs> if necessary, task. But I've got, I've got one more analogy on my mind as we wrap up this series. Last week, the world discovered evidence of Russian atrocities in Ukraine. We're seeing uh, this rise of totalitarianism all around the world again. And if history is any guide, totalitarianism inevitably brings with it manifestations of evil and suffering and death. And that causes me, of course, to think about World War II when, when U.S. troops were sent to Europe and to, the, and to the Pacific to save the world from fascism. If ever there was a just war, then surely ending the atrocities of the Holocaust and, and the tyranny of fascism would qualify. In such a conflict, the deaths of those who are sent to fight are an inevitability. In some cases, the deaths of those who are sent to fight are a certainty. But of course, the dying is not the point. The dying is the the tragic consequence of a commitment to a greater cause. D-Day, June 6, 1944, marked the beginning of the end of the war in Europe as 156,000 Allied troops landed in enemy territory by land and sea. It was, of course, a a dangerous but necessary mission. In his radio address to the nation that day, President Roosevelt said, uh, they fight not for the lust of conquest, they fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. More than 4,000 men would not survive the day making the ultimate sacrifice to save the world from tyranny, but it was a a decisive moment. And the war in Europe would end with Germany's unconditional surrender 11 months later. It's an imperfect analogy, of course, as are all theories and metaphors for the mystery of God's work in the world, but it seems to me uh, that this one is close to the notion of Christ the victor, the willingness of God to go to the cross, to liberate us from the sin and the suffering and the evil and the death in this world. These days, uh, when I sing that beloved hymn, How Great Thou Art, and I get to that memorable verse, I reinterpret it just a little. And when I think that, that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to save, I scarce can take it in. 
Friends, Holy Week is the, the culmination of the story of the extraordinary life that saves us all. All that's required of us is to, is to put our faith in him. I hope you'll be able to join us on Thursday and Friday night to hear the story of what it takes to get to Easter. Amen.